This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. A clear strategic focus and sound management are essential to the effective stewardship of taxpayer dollars, enabling agency decision makers to make tough choices on a day-to-day basis and for long-term management challenges. Given the critical challenges facing government today, the ability of government executives to properly align mission support functions with mission delivery can help them respond more effectively to their mission and management challenges simultaneously as well as drive change within their department. The U.S. Department of Commerce has sought to improve performance and operations while managing its resources more efficiently and effectively. What is the management and performance agenda for the U.S. Department of Commerce? How is commerce working to transform the way it does business? And what is commerce doing to support its employees and reform its hiring process? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Ellen Herbst. Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration within the U.S. Department of Commerce. Ellen, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Paul Kayata. Paul, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Ellen, I always like to start by providing our listeners with some context about the organization, in this case, the U.S. Department of Commerce. Perhaps you can provide us with an overview of the history and continuing evolution of its mission. When was it created and how has the mission evolved to date? Sure. Thank you. Uh, well, the Department of Commerce started out in 1903 and it was actually the Department of Commerce and Labor. And uh, within about 10 years, that broke apart into two different departments. Commerce has, I would, I would venture to say, one of the most diverse mission sets in the government within any cabinet agency. I know a lot of cabinet agencies say that, but we have everything from predicting the weather to counting people in the decennial census to issuing patents and trademarks, uh, helping businesses trade, uh, increase their exports, helping economic development in regions. So it's a very diverse portfolio. We're 12 operating units. We have about 47,000 employees. And uh, as CFO, it wouldn't be complete unless I mentioned that our budget uh, in FY15 is about $8.5 billion. So thanks for taking us through that. Um, Maybe now we could get down and talk about your specific roles. Um, If you could tell us about the responsibilities associated with the Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary for Administration for the Department of Commerce. Sure, happy to do so. Thank you. So some departments have the administration and the financial together. Some don't. Commerce is one that does have the both of them together. So the portfolio includes financial management, budget, HR, acquisitions, civil rights, uh, open government, facilities, risk management. I'm also the performance improvement officer for the department. 
So it's a pretty broad portfolio. We have over 300 federal employees in the organization, plus a, a large number of contract support people that we depend on. And I have to say, I'm, I'm the luckiest CFO ASA in the government because I've got the best team in government. I've got great leaders of each of those areas and, and just overall a uniformly excellent workforce. So uh, regarding your responsibilities, Ellen, what would you think are your three top challenges and how have you sought to address those challenges? So within the department writ large, I think one of the things that all the secretaries in this administration, but in particular Secretary Pritzker, has brought to our thought processes is looking at commerce for what it really is, which is a federation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is not a holding company. It is not a one-size-fits-all. And uh, I think you can see in everything from our new strategic plan to what we're doing in shared services, which are two of the big initiatives um, I'm involved in, that we have uh, a, an approach that says we honor the mission unique things in each of the operating units, but we're also doing a lot more to identify those things that we would do better if we did them together. Not just in mission support, which is the place a lot of people are going, but um, importantly for our strategic plan in the mission area. And so as the PIO for the department, it may be not a role you'd normally associate with a CFO, but um, my team was involved along with the secretary and the policy team and all the goal leaders in the department in creating what for us is, is a really robust strategic plan that, again, talks to the important strategic initiatives across the department, but just as importantly, knits together the different operating units' equities in each of those. Mm. So I'll give you, for instance, one of our strategic pillars is environment. And given that we have the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in our department, you'd say, oh, well, that is the pillar where NOAA is doing its thing. And that it is true that they own a large number of the strategic objectives in that area. But to give you a specific example, one of the things in our environmental pillar is encouraging the development of green technologies and encouraging and supporting our American companies who want to export green technology. So that brings in our National Institute of Standards and Technologies. It brings in our Patent and Trademark Office. It brings in our International Trade Administration Office. And so all of a sudden now we have a lot of people who understand that they play an important role in our overall goals in the environmental area that in the past wouldn't have thought of themselves as being particularly supportive or engaged in that area. And in doing this in your capacity, that was a challenge to get that re- to get the folks to buy into it? Well, or? it was a challenge in that it was not the way our department oh, typically uh, operated. In the past, I will tell you, our strategic, the way we developed our strategic plan was every operating unit developed their strategic oh, plan and we brought it together and we kind of after the fact looked for the threads to connect and then wrote the kind of topper piece. This, and it was driven very much by Secretary Pritzker. Um, and continues to be driven by Secretary Pritzker and Deputy Secretary Andrews, was a, no, no, we got to start from what we're trying to accomplish for the overall missions, and we'll develop the processes and the procedures to work together across these operating units to both develop the plan, 
agree on the objectives, agree on the action plans, put in place goal leaders. Are there any other challenges? I mean, given austerity, sequestration, are there any other challenges that you're facing? Yes, definitely. Thank you. Uh, And look, uh, budget uh, constraints are with us today. And I think my view is they're going to be a fact of life going forward. Um, And certainly when you are responsible for the mission support areas. And I'll point out that I call them mission support. I don't call them administrative support Mm -hmm. because I believe the only reason to do them is in support of the mission. Uh, And I take nothing away from our compliance and stewardship responsibilities there. That is part of supporting the mission. But in a world where you have limited budgetary resources, it is especially hard to take a dollar away from mission to mission support. So I think one of our challenges and opportunities is to figure out ways to both deliver better service, Mm -hmm. but do it in a more economically sustainable way. And for us then, shared an approach to what is we consider true shared services is is what we are banking on, is what we're putting our efforts into to both deliver improve quality and consistency of quality of service delivery, improve transparency to the clients, improved accountability to the clients, but also do it in a way that's going to be economically viable over the longer term. So among the, as you implement these uh, and address these challenges, no doubt you've encountered a surprise or two. Could you uh, let us know uh, what's really surprised you the most since you've started your role? In this role? Well, um, I think I have the advantage of having been in the Commerce Department before I became the CFO. So I entered the position with the advantage of um, a good, gosh, six or seven years in commerce. And I had entered government service and entered Commerce Department leading one of our bureaus. So I had both that bureau operating view, but then I had the opportunity to become the Recovery Act coordinator for the department in February of 2009. So I got to work at the department level with six or seven of our operating units in getting a great deal of money out on the street in a very responsible, accountable, prudent, but quicker than we'd ever done it before way. So I feel like, and and then I was uh, senior advisor to the deputy secretary and my portfolio included coordinating and supporting and managing management initiatives that cut across the entire department. So I think I had the great good fortune when I walked into the CFO role of having a pretty good idea of, um, of the department. And having some background in budget, finance, HR, and acquisitions, I will tell you honestly, walking in, uh, one of the uh, parts of my portfolio that I neglected to mention earlier was security. Mm -hmm. And I came to realize very quickly I had no idea of the breadth and depth of the responsibility you have when you're responsible for security of your people and your facilities and your principles. So that was an entire learning curve I had not anticipated. And I think the challenges, regardless of whether it's a surprise or not, so I wouldn't say they would see surprises, but I would say some of the other challenges, and, and I've spoken about, I speak about this a lot inside of commerce and outside of commerce is, especially in the mission support area, as we look at the workforce, and we look at what's happened to the depth of uh, experienced people, particularly in acquisitions and in HR, because of things that have happened over a period of years, I I think we have a duty and a responsibility to really pay attention to refreshing that workforce. 
those two areas in particular and acquisitions in particular are the types of professions in the government that it takes a while to get people up to speed and get them from apprentice to journeyman to really expert levels in those areas. And as we see more and more people retiring who have that expert level and we look at our pipeline, mm-hmm. and I think this is an issue not only in commerce but across the entire government, uh, we really need to pay attention to ways to both bring people in but also figure out ways to get them through their learning curves faster than we've traditionally done it. I don't think that's a surprise because everybody in the government's facing that, but it's an ongoing challenge. It's a challenge that requires leadership. And I, and I want to actually switch gears and get a better understanding of your leadership style and the key principles that continue to the, inform the way you lead. Who has influenced your leadership approach, too? Um, so I spent 25 years in the private sector before I came to government, and I have had the enormous good fortune to work for companies that had great leaders and managers in them and also invested in their people to develop their leadership and management skills. So I feel like I stand on the shoulders of a lot of other people. I would say my leadership style has continued to evolve Mm -hmm. over a long career of managing people. Um, I am a data-driven, outcomes-oriented person, so I don't want this to sound like it's all fuzzy, but uh, I very much believe in being very clear on what goals you're trying to achieve and then to have plans, project plans, measurable milestone plans if you're implementing something new, and also metrics. I am very much a metrics-driven person because I think that's the only way you can achieve shared expectations of what's expected, what you're, you know, how do you know that you've achieved success in something if you don't talk up front and, and agree on what success looks like and how you're going to measure that. So very much data-driven, very much um, metrics-oriented, and very project management-driven. And then if you have that structure and framework in place, it frees you up so that you're not always wondering and badgering people about where they are on things on an ad hoc basis. What is the management and performance agenda for the U.S. Department of Commerce? We will ask Ellen Herbst, Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration of Commerce, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges. Finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ellen Herbst, Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration within the U.S. Department of Commerce. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Paul Kayata, 
So, Ellen, you briefly in the last segment talked about the strategic plan you engaged in, and, and Commerce's mission is focused on creating the conditions for economic growth and opportunity. So to that end, would you briefly highlight the department's key strategic priorities as well as its current agency performance goals? How do the performance goals support improvement in your com- outcomes? Sure. Um, so our strategic plan, which is the 2014 to 2018 strategic plan, has four mission pillars, and they're supported by a fifth goal that we consider foundational to the pillars. So the four mission pillars are trade investment, innovation, environment, and data. And they're supported by the foundational goal around operational excellence. These areas were developed, again, at a departmental level and then um, cascaded down into the operating unit. So each of our goals has a goal leader, a goal area has a goal leader, and then each of our strategic objectives has an objective leader. And since our objectives have two, three, four, five operating units included in them, these objective leaders are responsible for managing the action plans and the objective accomplishment across these operating units. What One of the things we did, and again, I mentioned I'm the performance officer for the department, so we had already been working, of course, not only our, our overall OMB goals, but we had been working our agency priority goals and the cross-agency priority goals that we participated in. So one of the things we did do was map our agency priority goals into and make sure that our strategic plan is kind of the test of whether we were actually hitting all of our priorities in our strategic plans. That's one of the tests we ran. Here's our existing agency priority goals. Do we see them in this new strategic plan? So for instance, increasing the high impact in inward foreign direct investment into the United States is part of our trade and investment pillar. It's been part of our uh, APG for a long time now. Um, and so you can see that in there. We've always had one or more priority goals that relate to our responsibilities in the environmental area. So whether it be improving warning times on flash flood alerts or improving our midterm weather forecast. So there's different science and technology that improves your three-day forecast as there's a different set of of technology that improves your seven-day forecast and so forth and so on. And so we see those built into our priority goals. Our newest area in terms of a focus at a strategic level is this idea of we are a data agency. Uh, when And when you look at – and a lot of people think about census right away and, and all of the data they collect on both population and the economy, and that's certainly true. But actually, NOAA – is an enormous data producer, just enormous. And and our other bureaus also produce large amounts of data. So when we started looking at that, we said, not only do we have a need to think about strategically how we continue to support infrastructure-wise disseminating this ever-increasing amount of data, making it easier for people to discover, um, but boy, there must be, there might be business opportunities embedded in this data. Um, so I think that was an area while we knew we were a big data and information agency, we hadn't quite thought about it in that way before. And so um, thinking about what kind of goals and priorities and how we measure our progress there has been probably one of the more interesting and new areas we've been working on. Well, Ellen, I'd like to continue this exploration of your portfolio. 
And, you know, the, the other thing is CFO, you deal with uh, financial information and recognizing the importance of accurate and timely financial information. Would you give us a sense of how you work with the bureaus or operating units in this area? And more particularly, what are some of the key challenges faced in providing financial management mission support? Thank you. I was trained uh, formally as an accountant. So I have a degree in accounting and economics and an MBA. So this area is near and dear to my heart. Again, we're very fortunate in commerce in that most of our operating units are on the same financial system, which is I know is unlike some other cabinet agencies. Uh, we do have two operating units who are pure fee-for-service organizations. And so the right system for them is one that supports that. So they are in different systems. But but the other organizations as well as headquarters is on the same system. Now, it is an old system. So one of our challenges is we have a, a very old financial system. The good news is we have an integrated acquisitions and financial system, but they're both pretty old and they need to be upgraded. Uh, we are taking the opportunity in planning for our upgrade to make sure, even though we are running on one system, we have a couple of instances of it, we are taking the opportunity to make sure we are absolutely standardized on our business processes and we are standardized on our data. And I think we're, we're lucky in that we have a pretty experienced group of people who have been involved in, the, in running the system and producing our financials uh, for a long time. And our biggest challenge is basically our technology has to be refreshed. And I don't want to make it sound trivial because it's mm. a huge undertaking to upgrade your financial system. And, you're at, and we're upgrading our acquisition system at the same time because they are integrated. So that is, that is a challenge we are all uh, facing together as well. So momentum has been building in the federal government to align governments, as you refer to it as mission support activities, um, into a more of a shared services model. And you described one of your primary roles is, is that. So could you describe for a little bit about that uh, endeavor? Um, what the, what, what the, what's the concept of shared services in the context of, of um, the Department of Commerce and how is it going? Well, I really appreciate that opportunity because this is the thing I, I have to say I'm probably most passionate about, about what we're doing right now. I think the motivations in commerce are truly about um, improving service. I mentioned earlier when we were talking about the development and implementation of the strategic plan that our leadership together, both political leadership and career leadership, have worked together on this. One of the things we did to check in on how we were doing is we have periodic day-long off-sites in addition to our more regular monthly check-ins. And at one of our off-sites last year, uh, it was focused on how do we implement the strategic plan more effectively and on a more accelerated basis. And we were deliberately trying to tease out what the challenges to that were. And the first thing that our mission leader said was we need to be able to hire faster and we need to acquire things faster. And once I got over my broken heart, I realized that they had handed us a great gift, which was those mission leaders had told us how important what we do is, right? If the first thing out of their mouths was help me, essentially hiring someone and buying something is really about bringing in resources to accomplish the mission, right? So they said that's so important that we've got to do better at it. Well, this becomes our burning platform. And so our shared service initiative within commerce has been driven by the goals of 
improved service, improved consistency of service delivery, improved accountability, and improved transparency. Early on, as CFO, I banned the use of the word cost-cutting as part of this initiative. And I know some people across the government were a little surprised when I was – and I was very open about that. And here's why I was so confident in doing that. If you do shared services right, you will get, at minimum, cost avoidance, and you will likely get cost savings if you do it right. But that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is to make sure that we can continue to deliver excellent mission support to these important missions in an environment where our resources are going to continue to be constrained, where our people are, are, you know, are continuously asked to do more with limited budgets. And so I think the focus on delivering effective mission support will lead us to a better outcome and will still save us money in the long run. And so you don't have to make cost-cutting the primary reason you're doing it. Now, across the government, we can't ignore the fact that we are not on a sustainable path when it comes to mission support. And frankly, it just doesn't make sense to buy the same things hundred different places. Um, one of our shared services, so our shared service initiative, I told you what the goals were. We did. We put a bunch of design principles in place. Most importantly, we worked very hard on the governance at the beginning before we ever started the project. And the governance, uh, we have a board of directors, which is our deputy undersecretaries, our COOs of all the operating units, our CIO, our CFO, and the deputy secretary chairs, the board of directors. And we worked out a lot of the governance issues. We picked four areas in mission support. The four are HR, acquisition, IT, and financial management. And then we put a, a project in place that the board of directors signed off on that was built on data. So we gathered a lot of data in those four areas, including an enormous effort on voice of the customer. We analyzed that data against the criteria we were using about how would we change the way we're doing these things based on this data if our goal is better, more consistent service delivery, better accountability, better transparency? The teams that did the work were the people who actually do the work. And it was an amazing thing to watch and lead as the project sponsor because these folks who you might think were more, you know, they might be concerned about I'm goring my own ox. Mm -hmm. They just did amazing work, and they came up with some terrific recommendations based on the data and the data analysis, and we were supported by good contract support and so forth. But those recommendations were presented to the uh, board of directors, and we are now moving forward into, okay, great recommendations. Now the real hard work begins, which is the detailed planning for the concepts of operations, the detailed implementation planning, and then on to execution. So we're really just in the detailed planning stages at this point. I've been fortunate enough to be able to participate in the larger government-wide conversation about shared services. And I am, I think, one of the more, you know, I, I represent one of the passionate ends of the spectrum around this is so important to do for the reasons we've talked about already. These are important functions. We are not on a sustainable path in terms of the resources we need. The investment in systems and technology and automation that has to be done to either renew our existing investment or to drive even more investment in technology to help these areas. If we try to do it on our own, each one of us on our own, we will never get there. And so 
The other thing I started to mention was one of our areas was acquisitions. One of the government-wide areas is acquisitions. We've done a lot of work on what is our common spent. Mm-hmm. We think at least a third of what we spend that we is under kind of our direct control, if you will, and is not something that somebody else is doing on our behalf. So about a third of uh, spend that's under our control is common in the Commerce Department. So you know, why wouldn't we put the effort into ensuring we have vehicles in place where we are getting the best value for every dollar? And not only are we getting the best value for every dollar, we are freeing up a very precious resource, which is experienced contracting officers and contracting specialists not having to buy the same thing that six other contracting officers are buying on six different contracts, right? But we we get the double hit of a better value for our spend dollar and freeing up our limited experienced resources to put them on the really critical, really mission-unique acquisitions that we have to do. So that acquisitions, the, the category management approach is one we wholeheartedly support. I think in the area of HR, we have opportunities there. We have to be, you have to be very thoughtful in HR because you're talking about the core of bringing people in, supporting them throughout their careers, uh, de- you know, helping operational managers lead and develop them. So you, you have to be prepared to do your homework and be very thoughtful about how shared services can uh, provide a better outcome. In those areas, and, and I think that's one where we need to take our time and inv- invest in the analysis of what the best way to approach it is. But that is another area, I think, that is ripe for shared services. And again, in the area of information technology, which is probably the area the government has already done a number of things in, but there's still so many areas that are ripe for whether it is the buying So you go back to strategically sourcing, whether it is sharing the resource around data centers and so forth. We have to do this as as both the CFO but as someone who's responsible for delivering these mission services. It's our responsibility to put these things on a more sustainable path for the future. So you mentioned that you're still actually in the planning phases, but have you identified challenges, concerns that need to be addressed in order to be able to optimize the benefits that you've described? Oh, sure. There's no shortage of challenges (laughs) um, to overcome in this. Um, So whenever you're going to make a change, even if you have not a high level of satisfaction with your current way of doing things, there's the challenge of... Uh, first, do no harm. And so how do you plan for major changes in the way you're going to deliver these types of services that people rely on every single day and move into those at the same time you are continuing to provide services, right? So this is this is an airplane you're already flying and you're having to rebuild the airplane in flight while you're still flying it. So the challenges of, first of all, having a very thoughtful approach to what is the best way to, what does your end state look like? And think about it at the transactional level. It's easy to talk about these things strategically, but when you start to dig in on, all right, how am I going to deliver back office HR services, not just the systems. And we have a lot of talk in the government right now about systems, and certainly there's a lot of costs tied up in systems. So doing that in a more shared way makes sense. You know, we're 47,000 people. We have five back office HR operations in our department. 
that are currently serving those 47,000 people. So how do you change in a fairly significant way how you're delivering services while you're delivering the services? To me, that's the challenge we have now is how we get that right. So one of the things that uh, I'm constantly talking to our team about is help me understand how when we're all said and done with this, we're going to have a more seamless process. So that the client, whoever that be, whether it be an employee, whether it be a manager, whether it be a leader, is not in a position where they're having to manage the seams in the service we're delivering. I'm essentially going to be asking people to say, if you invest in this initiative, which means you might have to make trade-off decisions with some other priority that you wanted to fund, I will deliver to you better services to the missions at a better value at some point in the future, <laughs> right? So the business case and being very diligent about the business case is, I think, another challenge in this. So as the performance improvement officer, you, you mentioned that earlier, you are the PIO for commerce. Would you tell us more about your efforts in conducting timely performance reviews uh, with each of the bureau operating units? And in what ways does this drive accountability, align expectations, and what have you? I'm going to start again with I am so fortunate. Um, <laughs> so when I came into the department 10 years ago, we already had at the deputy secretary level a quarterly perf- ops performance review process in place. And in one form or another, we've continued that ever since. Um, it has changed. The process has changed over time. But this idea that at that at the deputy secretary and secretary level, there was going to be regular reviews of progress towards goals is is part of the departmental level culture and it's part of the bureau leadership culture. So we didn't have that to overcome. We already had that as a habit in the department. It was really, I think, uh, what I thought my uh, challenge was, was how we make that more effective. Mm-hmm. And um, I think over time, and again, I'm a metrics person, and over time, any good process can become stale, right? And I, I've, I've become convinced over the last couple of years that you almost have to refresh the process of thinking about performance metrics because after a while, after everybody gets really comfortable, it's hard to kind of keep that diligence level up and keep that level of challenging but in a good way, right? So there, that's a challenge. I think the other challenge is... It's all too easy to get into a compliance and oversight mode as opposed to a mode of we're here to discuss how we can all work to get to the goals. Mm -hmm. Our secretaries uniformly in this administration and certainly Secretary Pritzker and Deputy Secretary Andrews have been just magnificent at creating this culture at the leadership level of you will never be uh, chastised for bringing bad news forward or bringing risks forward. You know, the only time you're going to have an issue with your leadership is if you don't bring it forward. So the no surprises rule. But more importantly than the no surprises rule is the idea that these reviews are about truly honest conversation about what's working. What are the challenges? What are the barriers in your way? How can we help? So having the metrics in place is important because you can quite quickly go to the, did we meet our milestone or didn't we, right? And and there's not debate about the 
is are we measuring it? Do we understand how we're measuring it? And all those kinds of things that in a if you're at a lower level of maturity in your discussions, you kind of get tangled up in all of those basic things. And we're a, a bit further along on the maturity model for performance so that we're able to have the true conversations about, okay, what is the challenge in achieving this? What do you see three months out that's going to be a barrier for you? Um, and how can we help? And I think one of the most powerful things our secretary and deputy secretary say in these meetings is, if you bring forward a challenge, then we all own it together. And we all own helping to solve it. And I think their actions are very important in driving that home. And they have demonstrated through their actions. So we've been doing this for a long time, as I said. We also do monthly goal leader meetings. We also do monthly check-ins with the deputy secretary on the whole range of operating things on a operating unit by operating unit together. By the way, I have those same check-ins as the CFO for all of my goal areas, as does the CIO. Um, and I think the, the, the real proof is when you have leaders who live by those words of, I'm here to help support you. I'm here to help solve problems with you. I'm not here to bang on you when you come forward and say, I've got a risk or I've got a challenge. And that's helped enormously in the sophistication of the conversations we have. And the and what's also been new to the process for us is because we now have a strategic plan that cuts across these operating units. I mentioned these, these monthly goal leader meetings and, and strategic plan review sessions that we have monthly. So now we're not talking about about it as much in these stovepipes. We're talking about here's a goal that requires four or five units to be doing various things. They may not be all integrated directly with one another, but they're all dependent. So the, the goal achievement is dependent on all these different things happening. And we're able to talk about it now across these operating units, which is unique in my experience. So, How is commerce working to transform the way it does business? We will ask Ellen Herbst, Assistant Secretary of Administration at Commerce, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ellen Herbst, Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration within the U.S. Department of Commerce. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Paul Kayata. Ellen, you mentioned earlier, uh, among the many things that you watch over included, is the multi-year renovation project of the Commerce Headquarters Building, the the Herbert Hoover Renovation Project a rather massive 13-year, billion-dollar undertaking. 
So how's it going? And, and, and what have you been learning as you've been going along? <laughs> Uh, so I should have, at, uh, in one of the earlier segments, when you asked me what was a surprise or a challenge, um, I have been involved in uh, building buildings. I've been involved in moving lots of people into new buildings. I have not been involved on anything on this scale um, and certainly not renovating a building that was built in the early 1930s. And except for the installation of air conditioning in the 1960s, hasn't had any kind of major overhaul done to it since then. So this is a full-blown, all the utilities, all the engineering, all of it is, is being upgraded. I should start out by saying that um, we are actually a tenant in the building. This is a GSA building. And so GSA is the prime and has the lead. And that approaching billion dollars by the time it's all said and done is um, mostly in the GSA appropriation since they're the prime and we're the tenant. But that doesn't take away from every single day we are working in partnership with GSA and with their contractors on this renovation. Um, it's uh, I mentioned it's, it was built in the 1930s. It's a, uh, almost 2 million square feet under roof. It's about 1.8. It's, so it's a huge building. Um, and it's got about 3,100 people housed in it. So um, in addition to uh, – I like to say to people, it's as if you moved into a massive 80-year-old house and we're gut renovating it while you were living in it because that's what we're doing. It, um, But we're doing it in phases. There's a section of the building at a time and we swing people out into swing space, renovate that space, put them back in, move on to the next renovation. Um, but in thinking about um, not just – renovating the building and kind of putting it back the way it was, because it's essentially as it was in 1930s in terms of the layout. We wanted to take advantage of the opportunity of opening up the walls and doing everything to say, well, it, to what degree can we make this a more modern workspace for our people, right? To what degree can we embed more modern technologies to what degree can we open up the space to have more light and airflow and, and just make it a more modern feel to it and open up more collaboration spaces for people? And so we took advantage, uh, not right at the beginning of the project, but uh, we've taken advantage of the project to kind of think about what we want this workspace to be for our employees and are also um, trying to do a more 21st century workspace as we go. And we're about to move into the first pilot phase of this mo more modern. Mm -hmm. So we did phase one of the building with kind of putting it back the way it was. And then we thought, okay, let's try to take advantage of this next phase and build out pilot spaces and test out some of these more modern layouts, um, put in a lot more technology. Um, and I have to say, this is a work in progress. I will be moving myself into the pilot space in about a month. Um, so ask me in a couple of months how it's going there. But it is a major project. We have great partners in GSA. We work together collaboratively. Um, I can't say enough about the good work they're doing. And I would say one of the things I didn't anticipate is uh, our secretary, has a lot of previous experience in real estate development. Mm -hmm. 
So I, I, if you'd have asked me whether a secretary would have subject matter expertise in a building renovation and be extraordinarily interested in it, I would have guessed no, but I would have been wrong. So we're lucky in that we have somebody who can bring to bear her subject matter knowledge to ask really important strategic questions about how we're running the project. Um, so that's wonderful. And whether you're a tenant or the, the building owner, when you're doing something like this, it's inherently risky. I mean, there's a bunch of yeah. things. So I like to transition. And risk is taking out a whole new significance in the federal space. And so I was wondering, what are you doing to spread the culture of risk management and taking risks seriously throughout your organization? Um, so we started in 2010 to think about uh, at the time, we didn't even know to call it enterprise risk. It turns out what we were starting to think about was enterprise risk. We had had a couple of things happen over the previous three or four years where our normal kind of project risk processes had perhaps failed early enough to detect an oncoming problem. And uh, the DEPSEC at the time uh, asked myself and the CIO to take a look at a broader approach to risk management. Um, and that was the start of the department starting to invest in um, enterprise risk management. We really got going when we brought in um, a couple of individuals at the department level who actually had expertise in the area and um, started to develop approaches and training materials and so forth to start training throughout the department on what enterprise risk was, how to think about it, how to think about it as something different than project risk management, because we had pretty decent kind of project-by-project project risk management processes already in place for our major projects. I won't say we had that philosophy throughout the department, but for our highest risk most critical projects, we had those in place. But we didn't necessarily understand. We were at a very early stage in the maturity model around enterprise risk. Over the last several years, we've, we've been moving up the maturity curve. So, for instance, today we have a shared understanding throughout all operating units, and we have people trained throughout all operating units about how to look at their operations and their program goals and assess in an agreed-to, trained, disciplined way, probabilities and outcomes. Um, we have the use of common tools around risk registers, risk mitigation plans, heat maps, so forth. Our senior leadership is actually trained on how to understand them. Um, we have built into our next phase of maturity in our strategic plan, we are building in our enterprise risk into every one of our goal areas, and we've go we're going strategic objective by strategic objective. Not done yet. I saw I've gone through the first phase with our highest level. We also have had a process in place for the last couple of years that on an annual basis, we use these folks who have been trained in each of the units to self-identify what we call the department-level mission-critical areas. And then we do a pretty lightweight due diligence on them at the department level. And then based on the selection, they get special attention at the undersecretary, secretary, DEPSEC level. Um, we um, have been informally helping to support uh, the network of people throughout other agencies who are at various stages in the maturity model on enterprise risk. I, I just, along with a colleague at HHS, did a presentation to uh, the Deputy Secretary's Council 
on what we were doing in our respective departments as part of kind of trying to spread the understanding. We are participating heavily with OMB as they think about the rewrites of some of the key documents and certainly now A123 as we're participating in that as well. We we heavily participated in last summer's efforts to talk about risk management and how to think about how to talk about risk in your budget submissions and so forth. So I would say we are still at an early stage of maturity in the area, but I do feel like we have come a long way in the last three or four years, and uh, I think we're able to help others throughout the government kind of who are at earlier stages and help them along. But risk is part of the conversation we have every day. And um, I think one important marker for me was when we had leaders and managers who weren't necessarily familiar with the whole concept start to get comfortable with the idea that no, it's okay to talk about risk and risk management because risk is there. It's not that by identifying risk, you've created it, right? You are identifying the risk and you are putting in place risk mitigation. And the other thing that um, I think was a marker of progress in our maturity in this area was um, we've, we don't have anybody talking today about how you completely avoid risk. Right? So people are more comfortable talking about the risks associated with something as this is a risk. It's not my, you know, no, it's not, it doesn't become a gotcha exercise because you've identified a risk back to an earlier point. And importantly, we're helping people get more mature on how to think about how you manage risk, how you mitigate risk, and at what points do you have the conversations about what risk you will simply accept versus what your alternatives to mitigate are. So we, we, I would say we still have a long way to go. We're probably a third of the way up the maturity curve to where we want to be, but um, we're making steady progress. And having dedicated resources at the department level, who, again, that group reports into the, my, my position, and we don't have a lot of them. We have literally a handful of them. But using this technique we use often in the department to leverage limited resources at the department level to be the training the convening mechanism, the facilitating mechanism, and then blow it out into the larger department and embed people in the departments with the knowledge they need to carry it on on a wider level is a technique that works well within our department. Regarding how you spend your time, you've mentioned that you spend about one-third of it on high-level oversight of operations, one-third managing longer-term projects, and one-third interacting with colleagues around policy issues. Would you elaborate a little bit on how to balance the, um, the urgent, the things that has to get done today versus maintaining the strategic, dealing with the short-term emergency while maintaining focus on the strategic initiatives? So um, I think I said I strive to maintain that balance. <laughs> Um, there are a lot. The there, there are a lot of. Um, there are a lot of days I, I find that I don't meet my aspirations. But um, look, I'm uh, I'm in the in an organization in a certain position, and I have I have at least three layers of SES leaders that work for me. So one important thing, and this is something when I, I'm. I'm asked to give career advice to individuals on, on occasion. And one of the things I say is over time in your career, if you want to continue progressing into more responsibility and kind of going up the chain, if you will, you have to recognize there are certain points in your career where your role fundamentally changes. And um, at this point where I sit in the organization, if I am spending most of my time trying to micromanage crises 
then I am fundamentally doing my job wrong. I either have not selected and supported senior executives who work for me who should, by all rights, I should expect that when I've got several layers of SESs who have organizations under them, that yes, there's going to be crises that do need my attention, but they shouldn't be most of my day because if they are, then I've got to rethink fundamentally my organization and how I'm doing my job. Um, it's hard because our tendency is to want to help get in there and solve problems, right? I think paradoxically having some of these major longer-term projects that I am directly responsible for, as we've mentioned, the continuing involvement in the strategic plan, the renovation, the financial systems modernization, the shared services initiative, it helps actually balance against the short term because it helps you. I, I have direct responsibility for leading those efforts across the department. And so you almost have to, it becomes easier almost to say, to let go of some things or to say, to be more efficient when you're working with your colleagues or your subordinates and trying to solve a problem. So it's kind of the, the busier you are, the more efficient you have to be, <laughs> yes, really. right? Um, and the, um, I think, if, if anything, the place that I fall short on my aspirations is um, I, I wish I could spend more time with my mission colleagues in, in um, helping them on a more proactive basis in those strategic discussions about how to solve problems and being that kind of uh, financial and business partner for them. So if anything, I'd, I'd say where I think I need to work more is carving out more time for that part of what I do. But I do think um, you have to be clear about what your role and responsibility is in your organization. And you also have to be clear with people who work for you as to what you expect from them. And you have to be very clear and continue to be very clear about what levels of things you expect proactive communication on. And I think that's one of the things that when you come new into a position, it's easy to to not spend the time on up front in, and, and it has to happen over time as well, which is you you have to have the dialogue with people about these are the kinds of things I want to know about. And I either want to know about them as they're happening. I want to know about them on a weekly basis. I, you know, And those aren't the metrics. Those are the something just blew up. So <laughs> there are some people in my organization who the, my assistant has standing instructions. If they show up, you are to interrupt anything I'm doing, <laughs> right? Um, my security director is one of them. Um, uh, depending on what part of the budget cycle we're in, my budget director is another one. And that comes from – that doesn't happen at the first day you're working with someone, right? Because it's not just the portfolio they carry and what things are more likely to be like blowing up that really do need your direct attention. It's also working with them to gain agreement and understanding on what level of thing is at their level – that they have com you know, complete authority because they should have the ability to solve, what things are not within their authority that they must come forward with or they must at least inform something's happening, right? And what things are things that, you know, you can always walk in and say, I've got a problem, help me solve this problem, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that, that but I, th I think respecting and honoring the role of everybody else in your organization and keeping that in your head and that goes back to kind of being that servant leader model is I truly believe that every person's job is important. 
and my job is not more important because of where I sit in the organization. It might have a bigger scope of responsibilities, but it's no more important than anybody else's in my organization because if they don't do their job well and if they're not well-developed and trained and supported and to do their job, something's going to break, mm-hmm. right? So if you truly believe that and you, and you live that when you're interacting with your peers and your colleagues and your team, um, it takes a lot of effort up front. And it takes taking time out to have the conversations that aren't transactional, right? Mm-hmm. But it pays – I think it pays off in the long run. Well, I'd like to actually continue down that road of advice. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Um, it's the greatest job that will drive you nuts in your life. <laughs> um, I I'd mentioned I left uh, the private sector and, and left a very good career with good remuneration and um, I, I think it's probably one of the best decisions I ever made. The satisfaction of knowing that you're doing things that are bigger than yourself is you just can't put a price on it. And, you know, at some point a price does get put on it with the, the difference in pay. But um, it um, – you will be frustrated every single day probably. Um, but – it's, it's at those moments of frustration that you can step back and you can say, what can I do to make this better, not just for this thing that's frustrating me, but that I can make a real difference so that this gets better for everybody. Um, and, and the impact you can have in the government, especially in positions of leadership and in, especially in the senior executive corps, it, it's just amazing the impact you can have. Um, and if that's what turns you on, then government service is for you. Mm-hmm. You know, if that doesn't turn you on, then you shouldn't come to the government because – and I tell my friends who are still in the private sector whenever they ask, I say, you know what? It, you have to be a much more effective leader and manager in the federal government to get outcomes than you do in the private sector for some very kind of structural, embedded, not bad reasons. But it's just the nature of the environment you're working in where you have so many more stakeholders and those stakeholders don't necessarily have goal congruency with you, right? So, you know, so how you accomplish your goals in, in, a, in an environment where multiple stakeholders may have different goals and different priorities. In the private sector... The board of directors and the executive management team have absolute goal congruency or one of those two bodies changes pretty rapidly, right? (laughs) And so you're all kind of pulling on the same harnesses towards the same goals. And just by the nature of what democracy is, you know, that's not the environment you work in when you're in the federal government. And so it makes it more challenging. Well, I want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy day to stay with us and talk with us. Uh, But more importantly, Paul and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Ellen Herbst, Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration at the U.S. Department of Commerce. Also joining our conversation from IBM was Paul Kayata. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
What are the key strategic priorities for DHS? How is the DHS Unity of Effort initiative going? What is DHS doing to improve its operational performance? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Alejandro Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary, U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.